0: The Wiser Podcast, conversations, public talks, and audio essays from the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research. Hello, I'm Cezo Wempof walsh and welcome to The Wiser Podcast. What do mermaids, abalone, snook recipes, and a lonesome sailor broadcast have in common? They're all research projects emerging from the Oceanic Humanities for the Global South Project, based in Johannesburg. Established in 2018, the project encourages research in the oceanic humanities, a field which puts humanistic inquiry in conversation with marine sciences, literary and cultural criticism, together with ecological insight. The project is a collaborative exercise in placing different kinds of knowledge in proximity about art, oceans, and the South. The project comprises a network of researchers based in South Africa, Mozambique, India, Jamaica, and Barbados, as well as a local cohort of graduate researchers from South Africa, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and Mauritius. Let's hear now from some of the project's doctoral researchers as they introduce themselves and their projects.
1: Hi, my name is Confidence Joseph. I'm from Blawayo in Zimbabwe. I'm based at WISA and the African Literature Department.
2: Hi. My name is Ryan Punasami. I joined Oceanic Humanities last year and just completed work on a research report where I was thinking with and about abalone, the commercial extinction the species face in South Africa, and what multi-species environmental justice would look like for all those involved.
3: Hi, I'm Megan Judge from Johannesburg, South Africa. I'm based at WISER and I'm registered in the School of Arts.
4: My name is Mabule Mohulazi. Based advisor, I am a Ph.D. student in the African Literature Department at the University of the Witwatersrand. It has
1: been argued that African literature has to an extent been concerned with stories of the nation, of belonging, claiming of certain spaces both legally and illegally, projects of writing back and of reclaiming humanity and dignity. The common thread in most of these works is the privileging of not only the human subject, be it the colonizer or the colonized, but of land as the space of contestation. What happens when we decenter the land in all these narratives and allow for a turn towards watery spaces? This question hints at what oceanic humanities entails and the type of conversations it allows. By decentering land and allowing for a watery turn, we allow not only for new readings of old narratives, but a new way of viewing the world. Growing up in Blawaya, in Zimbabwe, my encounters with water bodies were limited. On the rare occasions that water bodies, such as oceans, were mentioned, they came out as part of some religious account tied to the fabled powers of holy water, or linked to myths about water spirits. In particular, My grandmother often extolled the powers of seawater, and it was not uncommon in our house to find bottles of ocean water reverently stashed away. These dashed bottles seemed to represent an extra layer of protection over the family. She also believed in water gods who could either bless or smite, depending on how one related with them. It is these stories that have fed my fascination with water spirits and that inspired my current work, which is on the representation of water spirits in Southern African literature. Rather than focusing on real experiences and manifestations, my focus is on the literary gods and how they are employed in different cultural projects, that is in novels, short stories, poems, songs, and in film. I offer that these metaphysical creatures upset the concept of time and space and instead offer us perceptions of the world outside of the familiar. Oceanic humanities may, in the words of Elamo, call us to tr- descend rather than transcend, to unmoor ourselves from terrestrial and humanist presumptions as we recognize the multitude of aquatic modes of being and knowing. I also ask, what happens when we take seriously other ways of knowing water which cannot be proven within scientific discourse as we know it? When we privilege ways of knowing that are based more on intuition and cultural attitudes? The many attributes and roles of these water gods in literature are as fluid as water itself, and it is this fluidity that enables water spirits to serve different purposes depending on the author and the context.
2: In thinking about abalone poaching, I was challenged by one question. Is the preservation of one species more important than any other? This question is posed by Shahud Abedah, an ex-abalone diver, who in his autobiography, co-written with the journalist Kimondekhiaf, reflects on his life in what they call the underworld of abalone poaching. I was fascinated by his story, and that of his colleagues, because it provided a literal representation of the submarine, and drew me to thinking about the ways in which the ocean animates the livelihoods of many individuals, in this case functioning as a source of income, among other things. More than just a recreational activity, diving has had a long history on the continent and abroad, so the report attempted to synthesize seemingly disparate literatures, From Abba's autobiography to aquafarming websites and a documentary on the history of mandrakes in South Africa, I was thinking about the ways that abalone are not only exploited in terms of a consumption commodity, but also the ways scientific experiments have sought to extract and model technology off the shell structure of abalone. Multidisciplinary in its conception. Oceanic Humanities allows enough scope to engage with these human and non-human aspects of the ocean as we continue to think and rethink our relationship to water in this new age.
3: Many of the experiences I had whilst catching the winds across the oceans from the Cape to my yacht on a small vessel have pulled inside me in private wet spaces. Something happened out there. Parts of myself began to mix with the particles, gases, forces and pressures of the deep ocean. I have often found it difficult to speak into any of this. Much of it felt like it had been pushed down into deep holes inside of myself. But, over time, I have come to find ways of accessing these weathered imprints, feeling into them, through the processes of making art. Often, to access the holes, I found that I needed some material form of the ocean to explore with, such as salt. My most recent creative exploration, however, focuses on radio shipping networks and the blurred line that these land-based ways of knowing have when they reach far out to sea. In my Lonesome Sailor Shipping Report, I am exploring a series of broadcasts that don't stem from the usual locations. Instead, they broadcast from the site of the Lonesome Sailor who has just slipped out of these land-based signals long enough to have tuned into something else. Overall, this body of work explores concepts of the container that allows for encounters of difference, in this case, between the human and the ocean. Recently, there's been a welling up of human-ocean focus in the art world. For example, there's been some thought into the watery climates and atmospheres that humans live within as well as the human atmospheres and climates within which the ocean now lives. In both instances there is a focus on power within these dynamics. But what if we are drawn to the site of amphibious potential, the site where human and ocean coexist, where the modern human surface, so bound up in the Anthropocene, open to opens towards that which it others. Oceanic humanity's thinking allows for this kind of questioning to occur by drawing our attention to what is happening materially in the world around us. We are able to transmogrify with salt, to infiltrate with water, to rage with void. The amphibious potentials of this are found thickening time to stay longer with our own mutations. And it is here that we can begin to collaborate with the Earth forces in meaningful and playful ways.
4: For me, the project at large works through how traditions of Black thought have often operated at the limits of the human, in response to histories of racism and anti-Blackness, in which Black people have not always been accorded their full humanity. Alongside this proposition, I want to note the ways in which the ocean has become a predominant space and place from which to re-explore notions of being. This re-exploration involves seeing blackness as not separate from ecological spaces and histories like the ocean and offering a writing that engages with the more diverse ways the aquatic environment itself could be read and written. In fact, the sea has many ways of shifting from setting or backdrop to foreground as a key character. Reading the Black aesthetic alongside the Deep Ocean has made me aware that there are other interesting characters the Deep Ocean presents to us, characters that are also not entirely separate from Black histories. In my PhD, I try and turn around the standard trope of food as a black diasporic sign or as a symbol of creolization. Rather, I read the trope against the current, so to speak, and think of a fish diaspora. I do this by looking into the life and times of snook and codfish, their lives below and above the waterline. I argue that these species emerge as protagonists in both a biological as well as a social history of the Western Cape, the Caribbean, and the American South. In Soweto, where I'm from, the snook and cook joints operate from 6 in the morning until 10 a.m. latest. You cannot be seen sauntering the streets with fedgook and snook beyond that specific time. Also, it's just always best to get there Early because the best nook, big cuts with the right amount of bone, does not last long into the morning. Dipped in acha, a Hindu word for pickle, the snook is salty and cut into small pieces, sold at one rand a piece. Recipes featuring snook and cod are popular amongst slave communities, as both these species were used to feed slave populations and have now entered the cultural food memory of South Africa, particularly the Western Cape, as well as the Caribbean and the American South. The question at hand, however, is whether these diets have any impact on the biological lives of these species, whether we can trace the afterlives of slavery, empire, and capitalism through the recipe. Recipes and cookbooks present us with populations and species that slip in and out of markets. They translate worlds intimately, creolizing inventiveness with pleasure, but also species death with the end of the world. Cookbooks and recipes are carriers of cultures, histories, and memories. Often overlooked in ecological studies, especially post colonial ecological studies. Cookbooks and recipes may be useful, especially if we seek seek to understand unexplored or rather unreachable realms like the deep ocean or even women's lives.
0: These four excerpts from Confidence, Ryan, Megan and Mapule furnish a rich sense of how oceanic humanities research addresses key questions facing Africa and the Global South. By going below the waterline, we relativize land-based perspectives and terra-centric nationalisms. We enter the world of ancestors and popular religion, finding a spiritually creolized submarine. We think about resource extraction from the ocean alongside multi-species injustice, we grapple with how art can approach the scale of the ocean and rising sea levels, and rethink slave histories from the sea floor. Oceanic humanities for the global south encompasses the human and non-human, the surface and the depth, prompting new approaches to the aesthetic of water and producing decolonial histories of the sea.